This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project, teachers teaching teachers. Teachers, welcome to Write Answers, a podcast by the Ohio Writing Project. If you are listening to this during the summer of 2020, during the time of the great pandemic, I want you to take a moment, whenever you get the chance, and Google Ohio Writing Project, or you could find them through Miami University's webpage. And when you're on Ohio Writing Project's site, I want you to click Current Events. There are so many amazing things going on right now at the Ohio Writing Project, and they're all happening in a socially distanced and responsible way. For example, if you look at where it says RSVP on the site, you can connect with Ohio Writing Project every Sunday on Zoom, and we're discussing two of the most pertinent topics of this time. Every other week, we either discuss anti-racism in the classroom, or we discuss how to make this fall's online learning hybrid or in-person COVID crisis situation work. You can collaborate with colleagues. You don't have to try to deal with this alone. You can also, through the current events section, you can find and sign up for Ohio Writing Project's online classes. One of them that's coming up, you know, as of the recording of this podcast, is The Power of Art engaging visual literacy. This one goes from July 13th through July 31st. Ohio Writing Project is also offering staff development. OWP offers customized staff development around literacy and remote learning, and if that is something that you feel would benefit you, your fellow teachers, your district, email co-director of the Ohio Writing Project, Beth Reimer, um, with any questions you might have. I've included her contact information in this episode's description. Now, before we get to the interview with Liz Prather, a poem. This one's at poetryfoundation.org, and it's called A Litany for Survival by Audre Lorde. For those of us who live at the shoreline, standing upon the constant edge of decision, crucial and alone, For those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice, who love in doorways coming and going in the hours between dawns, looking inward and outward, at once before and after, seeking a now that can breed futures, like bread in our children's mouths, so their dreams will not reflect the death of ours. For those of us who are imprinted with fear, like a faint line in the center of our foreheads, learning to be afraid with our mother's milk, for by this weapon this illusion of some safety to be found, the heavy-footed hoped to silence us, for all of us, this instant and this triumph, we were never meant to survive. And when the sun rises, we are afraid it might not remain. When the sun sets, we are afraid it might not rise in the morning. When our stomachs are full, we are afraid of indigestion. When our stomachs are empty, we are afraid we may may never eat again. 
When we are loved, we are afraid love will vanish. When we are alone, we are afraid love will never return. When we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. I love that poem. Okay, so now it's time to introduce this amazing interview. It's one of my favorites of all time. To teach writing well, it can be helpful to hone in on what it means to really be a writer. When writers create great stuff, what's going on for them? What's going on in their minds? In this conversation with Liz Prather, we dig into this question and we explore ideas in her newest book, Story Matters, which is available now and is completely awesome. So here it is, my interview with Liz Prather. feel like if we don't create a philosophical and artistic foundation for students so that they can develop their own um, writing consciousness, then they're never going to have the autonomy and the agency to make decisions as a writer. And that's really what creates voice and style in writing is a student that feels like he or she or they can make their own decisions. And so if you're just, if you're just giving, if you're writing to the teacher as a means of content delivery, that's a very limited application. But if you're writing to explain to the teacher so that that teacher can then explain to the student why this is important mm-hmm. and why, why all writers all writers do this, then that to me feels really, um, there's longevity in that skill and there's transference to multiple skills. I, I always think there's really only about seven lessons. Like I could teach seven lessons and, and maybe this is a good idea for a book. Um, (laughs) the seven essential, I think Jim Burke has already written that book, but whatever. (laughs) Uh, but you know, there's seven essential lessons. And one of those is like decision-making, you know, how do you know what to leave in and how do you know what to leave out? And that is born on autonomy. Yeah. So I want to definitely circle back to that. And I have a few different places where I want to do that later on, but, um, before we get too far in, I want you reading your, this book changed a lot of my thinking about what it means to be a writing teacher. Um, I used to bristle at the idea that you have to have been in the profession that you're teaching. Like some people would say, like, in order to teach economy, you have to have been an economist first. In order to teach business, you have to have been a business person. I used to bristle at that. But I realized pretty early on in this book that a lot of the teaching of writing, like the really great insights, a lot of the great insights that you have in this book might be coming from the fact that you had a past life as a writer. I mean, you're a current writer too, but like you have your MFA, you've written short stories, screenplays, um, you've taught writing retreats, you've been a writer in residence at Moorhead State. And I wanna ask you about the Poppy Mountain Bluegrass Festival at some point. (laughs) I've never Um, been, I'm ashamed to say I've never been to Poppy Mountain and I'm so sad. I'm a big bluegrass fan, but I've just never been to Poppy Mountain. (laughs) It's like the Mecca of (laughs) (laughs) And you even, Say that you wrote, in your words, not mine, a horrific novel that will never see the light of day. 
Yes. Now I want to get to the real question in just a minute, but um, I was kind of curious, what was your horrific novel about and why was it so horrific? <laughs> so it was, it was for my MFA and um, it was a coming of age novel about a young boy who uh, leaves uh, Eastern Kentucky uh, and goes out into the wide, wide world and then comes home and it's a lot about place and it's a lot of, it's very atmospheric and it's very indulgent. I mean, it, I mean, it's incredibly indulgent. So I was living in Austin, Texas, writing it. And it's, it's like, it's like a love story to Kentucky. So it's, it's my like longing and nostalgia and reminiscence for Kentucky, but it was awful as a plotted story. So it was like, I had no, I, I was like telling the audience, you're on your own. Why don't you just watch me miss Kentucky for 125 pages? <laughs> and if you pick up any vibes that you like, great. But you know, so it didn't work as a story because it yeah. had no, there was no plot. There was no anatomy. You know, there was no like structure, architecture. There was nothing. Um, so it will never see the light of day, but I learned so much from yeah. writing and, and learning what not to do is as important as learning what to do. Yeah. So that's what I was going to really kind of get at with that question. And aside from just throwing like a really mean hardball at you, like at the beginning of the interview, it seems like your writing is your experience as a writer, both good and bad, um, really informs your teaching and what you have to say to teachers of writing. So what are some things that you think that ELA teachers could gain from spending more time writing, even if it's that starts out indulgent and you have to go through the bad stuff before you get to the good? What are some kinds of things that you feel like teachers could learn if they spent more time writing? So they just, I think the thing it's really is, um, credibility. It's just credibility. And uh, even if you're not like, if you're not publishing, or if you're not blogging, or if you're not writing poetry, or uh, short stories, or any of those things, if you're just committing to writing basically 15 minutes a day, or, or you're uh, going to four or five retreats over the course of the year, or whatever, it gives you a certain amount of credibility. Um, about how you approach a task. So it, it allows students to see you working in a way that's not just modeling. So, so it is modeling, it is modeling, but it's deeper than that. It goes to identity and it goes to energy, the energy mm -hmm. of the, what you bring to that. Um, you know, I don't think that uh, I don't think that that English teachers, you know, there's so much that teacher time is, you know, always the problem with English, with any teacher is how do you fit everything in? And I don't think you have to launch out and have a career as a writer to get the benefit of having a writing practice. It's mm -hmm. a writing practice. It's just um, Stanley Fish, who's the literary critic uh, and social critic, once said that verbal fluency is built on basically writing about nothing, right? Just like as a pianist practices scales, which is, is not a composition. It's, it's just, you're practicing nothing, but there's no way to become completely fluent as a, a performer unless you do those scales. And so writing practice is the way you access that verbal fluency. And I just think that teachers need to have and need to commit to that because I guarantee you they're reading 15 minutes or a day. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I don't know if an English teacher out there is not a voracious reader. And so the same thing applies. Yeah. I Don't you also think that there are some insights into the process that we just don't have enough empathy um, to really, uh, we don't have enough empathy to really get and share with our students unless we're writing. Like, I guess here's what I mean. One of the, I guess you could say subplots of Story Matters that I was picking up on was that writing, the moves that writers make is more nebulous than what teachers make it out to be sometimes. Like Absolutely. when we, when, even when we're trying to break, use something progressive like using a mentor text, we assume that the writer did everything on purpose and every word was carefully and meticulously placed there. But one thing that you hit on that I think is just fascinating that it was an epiphany to me is that a lot of the moves that writers make are based on instinct and yes. gut. Could you talk a little bit more about how you were able to get there to that, that idea and how you uh, use that to share with students? Well, <clears throat> I think that if you say, if you say to a group of students that I need you to write from your gut, if you're a teacher and you're like, I want you to write from your gut, I want you to write from your instincts. That's really a very terrifying, that's, that's kind of terrifying, right? For a teacher, you have no control over their gut or their instinct. You know, we don't, we don't know what the level of their gut or their instinct might be. <laughs> um, so there's that. There's also this idea that gut and instinct can't be learned. So this idea that either you got it or you don't, which I think is erroneous. I think it's completely hogwash. So I think the practice is what makes the gut, it, which is what refines that instinct, okay? So, you know, when I, when I, talk, to, I talk to teachers about that, I have, I have an idea that maybe there's a control issue. Uh, maybe there's a control issue. <laughs> um, and if they were actively practicing writing, they would understand that the missteps and the, the dead ends and the, um, I mean, it's really, uh, whatever the mystery is of the potion that ultimately, that they would then get, they would understand, oh, okay. So maybe what I'm asking my students to do is not as simple as a hamburger or a keyhole or an hourglass or whatever whatever other graphic organizer that they've they've used in the past. And I'm not dinging graphic organizers. There is a time and a place for graphic organizers. But I think graphic organizers are more purposeful if you use them after the student has written a draft, not before. Like the graphic organizer is how you put all the thoughts that you've developed in some sort of shape, right? Some sort of architecture. But I think formulas come from fear. Yeah. And, and so we use, we use them because we're scared that we won't have the answer. And that's, that's the best place to be. Like, I don't know the answer to this question. So, you know, a student comes to you and they're like, I don't, how should I organize this? And you say, I don't know how she, it's your essay. How would you organize this? Yeah, it's one of those things that we forget is that, you know, we get the big idea down in, in our, when we draft, but when we really refine it in the revision process. And that, I think it's such a revelation to use graphic organizers in the revision process. I, I can't believe I haven't thought of that before, actually, because that's when we really hone it we hone that chunk of marble into the statue. 
Right, and if you use the graphic organizer prior to that, the student is going to feel compelled to only limit himself or herself to the amount of space that the, whatever the organizer has. So if it's an hourglass or a keyhole or a hamburger or whatever, there, even though one, one idea may be this wild thing that they really need to give space to, they're going to limit themselves. I have an activity that I do <clears throat> with students on revision. And it's amazing to me. It's, so I bought about six fruit baskets of plastic fruit and I put them all in a big bag and I set kids around a corner. I set kids around a round table, like five kids, and then everybody else in the class stands around. So we fishbowl this. I dump all of the plastic fruit on the bowl, on the table and they have to organize the fruit. And they, and guess what, what is the first question they ask? How? How do you, how do you, Miss Prather, how do you want it organized? And I say, I just want it organized. So they know that a hundred percent of the time that we do this activity, there is an organ, a logical organizational principle that comes out of this activity. There is ne there's never been a time that I've done this activity that students have not organized the fruit in some way. So they might, put all the bananas together, put all the oranges together, or they might put it in, these are the fruits we don't like, these are the fruits we like, or these are the fruits that are spherical, these are the fruits that are like tubular or whatever, okay? <laughs> but they're but it's never not organized. Yeah. And that's revision. That is all revision yeah. is. So you put like with like, and this follows that. But if we weigh in, if we weigh in and cut them out of the organizational decisions it doesn't come from us and they don't know how it works they don't know how that works and if we just tell like in your section about structure and story matters if we just tell students structure they may or may not internalize it and probably they won't because i know right. i didn't when i was a student <laughs> right but when we have students experiment with structure and play with structure so they really get a more internal sense of it don't they they do. And they understand that it's really not structure. It's I, how do ideas communicate with each other? Yeah. And, and that's really more, more to the point. You know, just to make it about me a little bit. Um, <laughs> I, when I was reading the book, I was just writing things, you know, with my fancy pen into my notebook. Ideas, quotes, and things I wanted to talk about. And then I got to your section, I think it was the section about structure where you talk about the cutout method yes that william burroughs used yes um and how you have students cut out pieces of a story and they fit them together and they think about the structure in that way and then they look at how the author did it and they compare notes on like did i make the right move did the writer make the right move why would the writer structure it this way and i structured that's such a high level way to think about things and i thought it was such a great idea i wrote all my notes onto cards and i did the cut it out approach for this interview yeah. <laughs> and it yeah. And the thing I found, the, the reason I'm talking about this, not to, the thing I found was that if I would have just gone off of notes, I don't know that I would have structured the interview so that we started and moved in a logical sequence through things. It allowed me to really, like you said, put like with like, and this follows that. Um, it's a really helpful strategy for everybody. <laughs> it really is. And in the book, when I advocate the cut-up method, I'm suggesting that teachers use it with mentor text. But I tell you, the real, the real uh, juice, that, mm -hmm. I mean, the real good, the goodness, the great energy mm -hmm. is when you cut up, when a kid cuts his own piece up 
and puts it in a bag and hands it to five of his peers and say, says, here's my cut up essay, put it in the order you think that it should go. And it's immediate to him where the holes are. It's immediate to him where the logic fails because there, there's either, it's gotta be organized either by time or by logic, if it's narrative or if it's you know argumentative or mm -hmm. informational. And it becomes so clear immediately. So. Yeah. Wow, what a great conversation starter for like inquiry groups. I can't, that's just amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I it's, want... it's something to do. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. It's no, something no. to do. Like it's something visual. Like kids can move things around. Like you did with your index cards. Like that is a visual, tactile thing. You can move things around, right? You can yeah. you can do it that way. So, <laughs> so man, we're, we have a lot of different uh, threads going here. But I want to dig into narrative a little bit, and okay. I also want to talk. I want to start from the place of fear that you mentioned a minute ago um, on the Heinemann podcast. You talked about how narrative, it's at the center of every civilization. It's how we pass on our stories. It's how we pass on our spoken and unspoken rules, our traditions. It's a cornerstone of mm -hmm. civilization. It's one of the most important things. And yet in 2020 English classrooms, it's being relegated to something that's less than. Mm -hmm. And we won't necessarily pile on David Coleman, but... <laughs> Right. I mean, we could. We could spend yeah. the whole podcast piling on David Coleman, the, one of the framers of the Common Core, for those who don't know. Um, but there's something I think you bring up that's interesting with why we don't teach narrative. And it could help us like really fuel why we should instead. You said that we describe, sometimes we started, we, at one point we decided that narrative um, is too childlike and too soft and that it's less than. I also wondered, do you think that it's also not something that something that we re relegated to like a second tier because it's harder to grade? Like in an argument, you can find a claim, you can find the evidence, you can find the warrant, all those kinds of things. Narrative is a little harder to grade. Absolutely. I think so too. And so that goes back to what you talked about with the fear. Like, how do I know, how do I know as an English teacher if like what are the things like even if you say like we think about narrative we think about there's a character there's plot there's setting there's time there's details right but mm -hmm. then you can show you can show an essay or a, you can have a story which is there none of those things are necessarily clear but the story is still successful right and so how do you grade a story that does that so again we are worried so much about assessment and we're worried so much about grading and scoring and identifying and when really the question should be does this work for our aims what are our aims and what's the purpose are you why are you telling this story who are you telling this story to and does it meet the burden of its purpose yeah and you know I was one of those Penny Kittle, Kelly Gallagher YouTube interviews that they did. They were talking about how poetry should touch the head and the heart. I feel like all writing should touch the head and or the heart. Yes. And one of the things that I, that kind of became real to me as I read Story Matters is that narrative is one of the best ways that we can help touch the head and the heart of our readers. Because, you know, if we're writing an argument or writing something that's informative, a lot of readers just we don't have enough empathy to mm -hmm. care about the topic or to care about the cause. It seems like story can connect us 
mm-hmm. can connect our readers to what we're trying to write because it really helps the reader build empathy toward what we're trying to talk about. Yeah, and it creates a vehicle to deliver that argument and it creates a vehicle to deliver the information. So it's not just like you're, you're looking at statistics or claims that are, that are disconnected with our human experience. They are, absolutely, they are absolutely connected because they are embedded in a human or, or, or a character. It could be human or non-human character mm-hmm. that we recognize, that we recognize with our head and our heart, just like uh, what you said about poetry. And I think if we don't have that, your argument and your information is going is not going to be as successful. Now, do I think classic arguments have to have a narrative? No. And, you know, there are some informational texts that the narrative would be unnecessary, like in, you know, medical journals or something like that. But for the average reader, mm-hmm. we want we want to see another human on the other side in this. We In this information, we want to communicate with a human. Yeah, like you say in the book, writing doesn't have a formula. Um, I know that teachers who are obsessed with grading and are teaching from that place of fear, and I, I shouldn't be critical because I am that teacher some days. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I am too. <laughs> but um, when we're teaching from that place of fear, we, we want there to be a formula, and there mm-hmm. just isn't one. But I will say this, if you are, like having story in your arsenal is like having a secret weapon. And if you're not using story in most of your writing, that's like having a secret weapon and choosing not to use it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's another thing. I think that, you know, when teachers discount narrative, it, because it's some, it's a lesser than um, mode of writing or um, what they're saying basically is that a, the most natural way to telepath information is disqualified in this rigorous academic terrain that I have, I've created here. And so the natural voice of the child who has been probably entertained by stories by grandparents or their neighborhood or their community, their first, their family of origin, basically you're discounting them. You discount Mm -hmm. them and you discount their stories and their place. That's so critical. Stories come from place. They come from, you know, where you are, your location, whether it be social or emotional or physical, geographical, economical, wherever that place is, is where the, all that stuff lives. And so you're just discounting all of that. Why would you not capitalize on that? Why would you not build on that instead of tearing all that down and starting in some, you know, like sterilized. (laughs) Yeah. Like what means more? Yeah. Don't don't lie or the boy who cried wolf. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I feel like Story Matters works on two levels. Um, of course, it shows teachers how to um, teach really important writing moves, usually using mentor text. But it also, I felt like I was learning a lot of, as a writer. Was it this book designed to help teachers like in a sneaky way become better writers themselves no not really because <laughs> I, mean, I mean it it, 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 remind, it reads like like a williams Inser book um like stephen king's on writing it, it feels yeah. like it's doing two things it's helping me learn some moves that maybe i wasn't conscious of or thinking about before yeah that i can of course also teach students well that is my aim is to name the things that you probably do 
unconsciously maybe as a writer, you know how when you read a really good professional book and you're like, oh yeah, I do that all the time. And you see yourself in what the writer is describing. That mm -hmm. is kind of, I do hope that, that, that teachers who are writers also see themselves that way, see themselves in those, in the things that I'm asking them to, to do. Um, and asking them to kind of consider doing with their with their students. So that's good to hear. Yeah. So let's dig into it a little bit. I want to dig into the way that you use mentor texts, since that seems to be like one of the foundations upon which a lot of this work is built. Because that's how writers learn, right? Is they read and then they internalize certain moves. Um, in your blog post, 15 ways to look at a mentor text. Uh, you talk about Tom Waits, so let's start there. Yeah, what's he building? What's he building in there? <laughs> I love that song. Um, whether you're teaching characteristics or weaving narrative into an essay or the use of detail, do you have a certain go-to routine for how you use mentor texts with students? I try to not, I, my, my number one rule is do no harm. Like I don't, I don't want to wade in and say, you need to find eight metaphors in this text, or you need to find circle all the transition words or, you know, whatever it is that I, my teacher mind would do. I want to do hands off and I want to say, here's a really cool piece of writing. And he, and maybe give him a highlighter. And I say, get in there and root around and see what you find. Like, what do you like? What do you don't like? Um, what's working? What's not working? What sounds like a story? What sounds like maybe information? You know, the least I do, I want to develop in them noticing. Like, I want to develop them their ability to notice things. If I tell them what to notice, if I say there are six metaphors, then all they're doing is just finding the metaphors and that's done. It's done. No more thinking is happening after that. Yeah. So you're trying to make sure that, especially at the beginning, that students own the learning, that the learning is theirs. It's not yours. Exactly. And of course, I don't leave it there. I mean, I'm a lot more intentional later on in sure. the process. I mean, that worksheet that I do, 15 ways to deconstruct a mentor text is, is very specific and intentional and they're looking for specific things. But that would be after they'd read it once, they'd read the essay once and it just kind of like wholesale, broad based, broad spectrum kind of looking and noticing. Um, yeah, so there's, there's several ways to do that. And I don't think that you should read a mentor text just once, right? So mm -hmm. it can read a mentor text three times looking for three different things. Um, it seems like, I mean, I know that you do a lot of inquiry work, like project-based writing is, and this book has a lot of inquiry work in it. Like just the way, that way of examining a mentor text is a form of inquiry. It's, and I'm noticing a lot of like Reggio-based approach, um, Reggio-based influence, like especially with the idea of the provocation. Um, do you feel like a lot of the work that you're doing with mentor text is also instead of showing students what to look for is to provoke students? So um, remind, I'm very unfamiliar with that language. Is it that the, these are, re, these are the stages of an argument, like from a rhetorical standpoint? Oh no, like there's this, it's just like a, a form of inquiry. It's one of the methods of inquiry that is kind of popular in those kinds of um, guided and un, unguided discovery circles. How do, how do you spell it? I've never, tell me oh. what it is. 
R-E-G-G-I-O. It's, there's this city, uh, this town in Italy called Reggio Emilia. Mm-hmm. And they use a form of inquiry, which is very similar to workshop. Uh-huh. But they call it a studio. Oh, cool. And the teacher will provoke the students. Um, but, you know, they do their own kind of genius hour-y things, but they also, the teacher will provoke the students, like, they'll see a, a bird's nest while they're on the playground. The teacher will start asking them questions, like, what do you notice? And then yeah. that'll be the start of an inquiry into uh, the life cycle of birds, for example. Cool. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I love that idea. Um, I don't know, provoking, when I think of provoking, of course, I think more of the devil's advocate. And I don't yeah, really necessarily that ascribe way. to that. Yeah, I don't ascribe to that at all. But I do, like, you know, question curiosity. The curiosity mm-hmm. is at the at the core of that. And, like, um, it also allows, it throws the learning back on the student you know, if you, if you teach them those questions and they, they will, they very rapidly adopt the questioning stance. They really do. Um, almost immediately within, you know, once they're in my class within six weeks, they're kind of already questioning each other and learning how to question themselves, which is the whole goal. So it seems like questioning plays a big role in the way you teach a mentor text. And maybe that's, they're getting that because you model that a lot with them. I do model that a lot. And I'll tell you, you know, one of the reasons maybe teachers may not want to use the inquiry approach is because they think they have to have the answer to the question when they ask the question. Mm-hmm. And that is actually the wrong criteria for questions. So I ask questions that I really don't know the answer to. <laughs> so, and, and like, especially when you're writing, a co- when you're in a writing conference with a kid, you know, like never ask a question, you know, the answer to. So otherwise then, somehow the kid knows you're tricking them into, oh, she's, this is some passive aggressive exercise where she's doing a gotcha moment, right? Yeah. That's just so, that's just so, the kid just feels so used, I think, when you do that. Um, But asking questions really, you know, I I, I wrote this, I don't know if I wrote this in my first book or my second book, but, or the Story Matters book, but I had an interview uh, or a writing conference with a student once, and this is what this taught me, and it was, you know, it was so like lightning bolt moment. I said, to, I said to the student, I was like, why does your protagonist come in so late into the short story? So the, the protagonist came in four or five pages into the story. And she said, oh, I'll change that. I was like, no, no, <laughs> no. So she was so used to teachers couching questions mm-hmm. in a way that they were like slipping in content or slipping in the, the thing that they wanted students to do that she just assumed my question came from a place of knowing better, Yeah, that, that-, I, that I knew better. And then I said, no, 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 I don't want you to change it. I want you to tell me why you made that decision to do that. And she said, do you remember last year when we watched Casablanca? And uh, Humphrey Bogart's character doesn't come in until like 20 minutes. In, like he didn't, we don't see him. We see his hand like signing a check or something. She was like, I wanted to try that out. Mind blown. It's, isn't it amazing how that grade based fear impacts students just as much as it does teachers? <laughs> yeah. yeah. They all want to get the right answer, right? We all want to get the right answer. She was on the verge of of eliminating one of the most brilliant writing moves that you could yeah. see a student use. Like yeah. that's so sophisticated that not even successful filmmakers think to use, only like the really good ones. 
Exactly. And what it did, excuse me, what, what it didn't, she didn't have control of that technique yet. That mm-hmm. was the problem. She didn't have control of the technique, but when she did, what it created was it built suspense for the reader. Who is this person that other people are talking about, but we're not seeing on the page yet. And so, but she, again, she didn't have that under, under control, but once she understood what she needed to do to layer all that stuff in, wow, mystery. It was a great mystery. Yeah, it's like with, with carpenters, they get a tool, they play with the tool and experiment with it and try it out and use it wrong and as they're learning how to use it. And then it becomes something that they automatically use without thinking about. Yeah, yes. And I feel like that's what's at, this thing that's happening right here with this student's kind of at the crux of the book, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Teaching yeah. students a tool, then they experiment and play with it, practice, 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 until it becomes automatic, right? So I was kind of curious, are there any, what do you do to help students move through that process of converting a new tool into what will eventually be that writer's instinct and that gut decision? Well, one thing is we're not all going to be using the same tool. So when we do, when we harvest techniques from a mentor text, we're going to have a running list on our board somewhere of all the different techniques that we see that writers use. And I'm not going to come in Monday morning and say, okay, everybody, everybody is going to use foreshadowing in their argument. You know, they then look at that list. They have to look at that list and say, how, what technique would best deliver the purpose that I want, like, do I want to withhold this information? Do I want to have a ticking clock, for example? Do I want to show, do I want to create a hook in that opening paragraph that puts a timestamp on it so that my reader is dangling, waiting for the bomb to go off in it, which, which helps pull them through the essay. Okay. So that's one thing is like, once they've seen it used by multiple writers, and they kind of understand, then they have to, like you said, they have to play with it, but they have to create, you know, they won't get it right the first time. Like the execution is never really flawless, but if they Mm -hmm. use it over and over and over, and if they use multiples, I never ask students, Hey, you've got to use eight or you've got to use five or you have, you know, they may never use one of the techniques on however many we have on the board, 15 to 20 to 30, they may never use all of them, but just using one, just using one, like the ticking clock, for example, would increase the engagement of their reader, who who just happens to be me, <laughs> right? It happens to be me. Unless so, they're doing I, like, unless they're doing project-based writing and they're publishing right. it to a bigger right. Company. Unless they're doing project-based <laughs> writing, but it, you know, so I have I have two I have three classes that do project-based writing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, so what it does is it helps me drink less. <laughs> like I don't have to drink as much if they're using more techniques, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'm, I'm close to the end of, the, of my time and I want to respect your time. So I just have, I'm just going to skip to the last question. Okay. Um, you talk about the importance of knowing the through line or the log line of your story. Um, at least once you have that first draft done, if not earlier, because that helps you make better decisions. Yeah. It helps you hone your gut instinct. What do you think, what would you say is the through line of story matters? Mm. I have one for you locked and loaded in case it's. <laughs> what? 
I would love to hear what you think of the story matters through line is. Well, it's just the last paragraph on page 165. Oh, weird. That's so weird. I was going to say it's to help kids know how to tell someone they love them. Exactly. That's exactly. Mm -hmm. That's so weird. You, you say, uh, when we teach writing, we're teaching students to, in essence, search for themselves to make decisions, to forge on when half those decisions turn out to be the wrong ones. We give them mentors to read and opportunities to practice, and we encourage them to keep asking questions that lead to self-discovery. And we hope that when the time comes for them to tell someone they love them, they'll be ready. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, it says it all, go. doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really does. I mean, if we're not doing that, we might as well just download a bunch of forms and just call it a day. Because if we're not teaching kids how to discover themselves and value their voices and and uh, be able to communicate with another human, then, I mean, that's really our job. And that's really what we need to be doing. Yeah, and it's not a linear process. It's not a straightforward thing. And we have to just kind of trust that it's going to work out when we, you know, give students tools, give them time to experiment, play and practice, right? And it's not measurable. <laughs> that's it. It's not measurable. And that's, that's the real problem, I think, with writing. So what do you think is the solution? Because that's not a good sentence to end a podcast on. Yeah, the solution is if we approach writing as more play, like, I think the poll, the two polls that we have in writing instruction, and I talk about these in the book, it, you know, is like, it's rules, 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 or it's just like, no rules. We're just like in here smoking weed. You know? The law thumpers and the law yeah. breakers. Yeah. Yeah. The law, the law, the law, uh, the rules, you know, the, the gatekeepers of the rules and then the lawless, right? we have got to be, we've got to be both. We have to teach kids the, the rules of language and how to use language and how to, how to create all that. But we also have to really cultivate play in them. Mm -hmm. There has to be, they have to be able to approach the, 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 the uh, keyboard like a child. They have to be able to have play and just, and not take it all so seriously. Just don't take it all so seriously, right? It's not, yeah. everything doesn't depend on us then being able to define what tone is, right? <laughs> exactly. I love I mean, it. Give, give yourself and your kids a break. You know, you, you know all the rules and that's great. And they will absorb half or a quarter or an eighth of what you know. On a good they, day. Yeah, on a good day. <laughs> but what they really should, they really should walk away without any creativity scars, as Brene Brown calls them. No creativity scars should come from you and allow them to play with that and get used to, to putting words down. And that's the conversation. Isn't Liz Prather amazing? She's, she's so insightful and smart, and she really knows what it's like to be a writer, a writing teacher, and how to really reach students. Now, dear listener, I want to add that this interview that Liz Prather did with us this was one of three or four different things that Liz Prather did for the Ohio Writing Project this summer. And that's what the Ohio Writing Project's all about, bringing in some of the biggest thinking into our worlds. Because the, as Beth Reimer always says, the best teachers of teachers are teachers. So be sure to check out this episode's description so you can contact 
Beth Reimer to see how you can be involved with the Ohio Writing Project or how the Ohio Writing Project can be involved with you. Thank you.